Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. All right, let's turn to Acts chapter 19 and we'll get into the Word of God. We'll pray as we do. Lord, this morning um, we ask you to do a work on our heart. We, uh, we come and we recognize that you have that capability. That as we open this book, it can cut to the very core of who we are. You can take your word and change our lives. Change the way we think, the way we act. And so as we, we come, Lord, help us to, to open our hearts bare before you this morning asking you the question of what would you like to do in each of our hearts right now? And we pray this together as a church, longing to truly be disciples of yours. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. We are continuing in our series, our little study in the book of Acts, and last week we skipped a bit forward, if you remember, to chapter 20. And the reason we did that was because we were sending out the Woolwine family out on the foreign mission field. And there in verse 20, or in chapter 20, there's a great text that went along and was relevant to sending somebody to the mission field. Today, we're going to jump back and pick up in, ver- in chapter 19 because, well, because we want to cover the whole thing. And uh, as we jump forward, we had purpose in doing that, but we're jumping back to cover that which we missed Uh, in chapter 19 or at the end of chapter 19. And what we come to here uh, toward the end of chapter 19 is a very peculiar story of the seven sons of Siva. Seven sons of Siva, kind of a somewhat comical little story. And you'll see what I mean as we get into it. The context is that Paul is in the city of Ephesus and he had been there preaching in the synagogues for a while, for three months, in fact, in the synagogues. And when he was no longer welcome in the synagogues because people had hardened their heart and turned away from the gospel, he took those that wanted to follow Jesus, those that had come to Christ, he took them away and for two years he discipled them, personally discipling them on their own. And one of the the things that was happening is that God was moving mightily throughout Ephesus. And we see that uh, represented in verse 11. So look at Acts chapter 19 verse 11. And it says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that handkerchiefs and aprons were even carried from the body, from his body, from Paul, to the sick. And diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. A couple things that we want to point out here as we look at this. The most important thing in these first two verses is that very first word in verse 11. God, right? Sometimes people use this verse and they get it twisted up and they try to make weird doctrines out of it or they start weird church practices out of a verse like this. But it says what? God was doing the work. God was performing. We don't attribute these miracles to the person, in this case, Paul. He was simply the servant 
of God, whom God was using. And we don't attribute these miracles to the items that were taken from Paul. In this case, there were these handkerchiefs or aprons. Most people believe that these were um, items that he was using as he was working, uh, maybe like, a, you know, wrapped around his head or something, a, a handkerchief or an apron around his waist, and they were taking them. And when people would take these things from Paul, People were getting healed by them, and, and demons were coming out. Their faith was released. But we don't attribute the miracles to the handkerchiefs or the aprons. You know, we as humanity are quirky like this. Sometimes we'll grab a hold of an item and really put more value on it than, than we ought to. And, and we see the, the worship of relics in certain segments of Christian society. Our, our friends in the Catholic Church have storehouses full of relics, and in some cases, feel that, that they have some power. People treat the Shroud of Turin like that. If you go to the Vatican uh, in Rome, there's a statue of Peter, and the right foot of the statue is kind of sticking out a little bit. So people go, and they lay their hands on it, and they pray to it, and they rub it, so much so that the toes have like rubbed off. You can go online, Google the, the statue of Peter with missing toes, and you'll see it there. It's a bronze statue, and people have just so venerated it, and it's just a statue of Peter, but we don't really know what Peter looks like, so, so it's a statue of what an artist thought Peter might look like. It has no power in and of itself, but we can be quirky like this. There, there's an entire cult that has developed, dedicated to a piece of clothing that Mother Teresa once wore, as if it had power, right? And you know that it happens even within our culture. We have the, the shady televangelists of our day that, that'll say, you know, if you'll send some money into me, I got this piece of cloth that, you know, I either blessed or I wore one time and I'll send it to you if you send me a certain donation and you'll have power because I send you. Man, that's just crazy, right? Scripture's clear, isn't it? As to who does the miracles. And it says there in the very, God. God was performing the miracles. And, and notice what, what God was doing in Ephesus there. He was doing extraordinary miracles, uncommon to what they had seen, meaning we expect God to do miracles, don't we? But, but these were even unique and unexpected, the, the carrying of these cloths and so forth. So we don't start thinking that that's what we're going to do and, and make a doctrine around it. It was a particular act of God's grace for that time for those people in that place. Let's continue on. And we get in now to the seven sons of Siva in verse 13. And it says, but some of, or also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits by the name of the Lord Jesus saying, and pay attention to what they were saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Siva, Jewish, uh, uh, Siva was a Jewish chief priest and they were doing this. And the evil spirit answered them. And notice what the evil spirit says when they try to do this. I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, these seven sons, these, these seven guys, leaped on them, subdued them all, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. It became known 
to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell, uh, fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. And many also of those who had believed kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began to burn them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them. And they found that it was 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. And so on face value, as you read through that, it starts out by kind of coming off a little bit comical, doesn't it? You've got these guys, they have no association with Christ. They have no relationship with Christ, but they're trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name only to have the demon jump on them, right? And it would certainly be comical if you were one of the people that day standing in the streets of Ephesus next to your friend on the sidewalk, and all of the sudden, out of nowhere, comes busting out of the house these seven sons of Siva screaming, running down the road, buck naked, running away from this, you know, demonized guy. And you'd look to your buddy and say, what in the world's got into Siva's boys over here? So there's a bit of comedy to it in the scene But on the other hand, the spiritual truth behind it is not funny at all. The spiritual truth behind it is this, that there is a real demonic presence in this world dead set on destruction. It says in in 1 Peter 5a that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's our view that we should have. Of the devil. Or John 10 10, that the thief, speaking of Satan, comes only. What's his only purpose? To steal, kill, and to destroy. Why is that? Well, because Satan hates that which God loves. And what does God love? Yeah, that's right. He loves you guys, He loves humanity. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, right? And so in trying to to figure out a good approach to this particular text. It seemed to me um, that the story is really about who has power and authority in the spiritual realm, right? That's what the story is really about. So that's our approach. And as I read through it, I realized that, that there's four individuals or four groups represented in this story. Jesus, he's in there. Demons. Paul, and the seven sons of Siva. So Jesus is there. They're trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. The demons are there. Paul, who would then represent born-again believers. And then the seven sons of Siva, who who would represent unsaved people or unbelievers. So the question that we're going to ask this morning is this. How much power and how much authority do these four have in the spiritual realm. Those represented in that group, how much power and how much authority, how much power does Jesus have? How much power does, do demons have? How, how much power do born-again believers have? And how much power do the unsaved have in the spiritual realm? We'll, we'll start with Jesus, right? Because where is he? He's at the top of the heap, isn't he? Jesus holds absolute power and absolute authority. Out of this group of four, he is unique and distinct in that he is creator, correct? 
everyone else in this, this scenario, people and demons both, are all created. God alone is creator. That's what it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. It says, For by Him, speaking of Jesus in context, for by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. That's people, that's demons, that's the whole deal. Whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. For He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Or we look at 1 Timothy 6.15, where it says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, He who is blessed and the only sovereign. He's the only one that's sovereign. That's absolute authority. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, meaning that there's nobody above Him, that He holds absolute power and absolute authority, and that means that any authority and any power that anyone else out of that four groups has, it is power that the Lord has either given or allowed them to have, right? Because what does the Great Commission tell us? It starts out by saying, Jesus came and He spoke to them all, saying, all authority, all of it, right there. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And scripture says of everyone else, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Now notice, of those who are in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. That's everybody. It's including everybody. Every knee is going to bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And we see throughout the Gospels, and and we've been studying this for six and a half years as we've gone through the Gospels, we see this authority that Jesus has, and it played out in a very dramatic way every time Jesus comes into contact with demons in the Gospels. Every single time we see the exact same thing. Look at a couple examples. Mark chapter 5, when Jesus deals with the demoniac. Notice what it says. When the demoniac sees him, it says, seeing Jesus from a distance... He ran up and he did what? Bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High, I employ you by God, do not torment me. Who does it sound like is in charge in that little scenario? Or in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, when Jesus comes to Capernaum and he comes across a demon-possessed man and he says, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Or the testimony of Mark chapter 3, verse 11, when it says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And so what we see throughout the whole of Scripture, and there's a few other examples, but I think you guys get the point by now, is that any time that Jesus comes into contact with the demonic world, they fall before Him. Not out of reverence, but because they recognize His absolute power and authority over them. And that's important for us to understand. Because some have developed a very foolish and bad theology that somehow... Satan and Jesus are equals in their power and authority. And somehow in this world, they're locked in this um, back and forth battle. And we're on the edge of our seat, not knowing who's going to win. 
Guys, that's just not biblical in, in any way. I've read the end of the book. I know who wins. It's not even close. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 tells us that Jesus throws the devil into the lake of fire and brimstone where he is tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the end of the book right there. I've read it. I know what happens. And so Jesus has that ultimate authority. But that then begs a whole other question, doesn't it? What power does Satan have? What power does he have then? Because in our story, it clearly illustrates that Satan has and holds some power, at least over unbelievers, right? Because they're overpowered by him, critically overpowered by him, radically overpowered by him. Now, it helps us to understand a little of the background of Ephesus to understand where this story is going. Ephesus was a city that was given over to sorcery and black magic and incantations and things like that of that day. It was known for it. So where Athens, right, we studied Athens, where Athens was given over to idolatry, Ephesus and the Ephesians were given over to sorcery and that kind of black magic type of stuff. Uh, Verse 19 testifies to this quite well when it gives us the value of the books, the the sorcery books that were burned there. Some 50,000 pieces of silver. In the margin of my Bible, it says that a piece of silver was the Greek drachma, which is a day's wages. Now think about that. 50,000 days wages is a whole lot of money. That's how much the books were worth, the, the sorcery books that, that these guys, the magic books and all that they had, that's how much they were worth when they piled them all up and they burned them. So that gives us a little bit of an insight into what was going on in the city of Ephesus. And then we're told of the sons of Siva that number one, they're Jewish, and that their father, Siva, had been a chief priest. That doesn't mean he was the high priest. The high priest is the one that can go into the Holy of Holies once a year. There were, I believe, 24 chief priests that served under the high priest. So Siva, their father, was one of those. That means that he was of that Aaronic line, a descendant of Aaron. They themselves, and a sad sad testimony, is that they themselves should have been priests dedicated to the Lord. That was their lineage. That's what their, their history was. They could have gone a faithful route. They, they had that, that background. Yet, they, they chose to walk away from that. And verse 13 tells us that they became these traveling exorcists. Now, the Greek word here for exorcist means one who speaks out a spell or an incantation. It's speaking of verbally casting a spell, saying it out so they would have these right spell books that they had burned, right? So they would have these, and then the seven sons of Siva would cast these spells. You'd go to them, you'd be like, I got this problem, and they would have some sort of an incantation. Let me open my book, and they'd you know, cast like some sort of a, a spell over them. So these guys clearly see Paul casting out demons, and they hear what he's saying. What does he say? in the name of Jesus. So they come along and they see Paul coming along and casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And what happens? It works, right? And they think to themselves, 
well, that's a nifty little spell that Paul has right there. Maybe we should give that a try. That's what it says in verse 13. They came along and they said to those that uh, were demon-possessed in verse 13, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. See, they had a problem because Jesus was a very common name of that day. They wanted to specify. So they go, we don't really know Jesus ourselves. We have no personal relationship with him. So we need to make it really specific. So we'll cast out this demon in the name of Jesus, who's Paul's Jesus, the the Jesus that Paul knows, the, the Jesus that Paul follows, to which the demon said what? I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? Who are you? In essence, saying to them, you're an imposter. Saying to them, you've got no power in this battle. You've got no authority in this realm. And then the demon-possessed guy jumps on them, beats them all up and runs them out of the house naked, running down the streets of Ephesus. So clearly, as we're talking about power and authority, Satan and demon hold some power over unbelievers. How does this play out? Where does it come from? Well, we got to go back to the fall of humanity, don't we? And what happens in the fall of humanity? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve choose. Now, don't miss this. They choose to listen to and obey who? Satan over God. They make that choice. God said, don't do this. Satan said, do this. And so they did it. So they made a choice there. And in listening to and obeying Satan, they gave him influence and power over their lives. They could have stood firm on the word of God and the promises of God and said, no, God said, don't eat it. But instead they obeyed Satan. And so in a very real way, they then handed over power to Satan by their rebellion to God. Everybody following me so far? And so sin enters the world then through their rebellion. And it has infected all of humanity. That's what Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says right there. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all have sinned. So the unredeemed world in its sin and rebellion against God has placed itself under the authority of Satan. Scary stuff, yeah? Ephesians chapter 2 talks about what we were before we were saved. What we were before we were saved. And it says this, once... You were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live this way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of the sinful nature. And Satan's influence over the world has become so strong as we have given him power and influence in our lives that Jesus in John chapter, four, uh, John chapter 12, I believe verse 31, refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. Now, 
not the ruler of this world in an ultimate sense, because Jesus is the only sovereign, right? But the ruler of this world in the fact that the world has chosen to remain under his influence because we've decided not to come to Christ, right? In so many cases. And scripture gets graphic then about those who remain under his influence. In 2 Timothy 2.26, it describes the unbelieving world as caught in the snare of the devil. Or or 1 John 5.19 says of the unbelieving world, the, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so the point this morning is that in that state, being separated from God, unbelievers are in very dangerous territory, aren't they? They have no power, no authority over Satan in the spiritual realm. That's what happened to the seven sons of Siva, isn't it? They tried to do spiritual battle that they weren't equipped for, correct? They had no personal relationship with Jesus. They had no authority, no power, and no protection from the Lord, yet they tried to step into that realm. You guys are thinking to yourself, this is a bummer. Like what a drag this message is. But it gets better. On the other hand, we see Paul. And Paul's representing what out of our group? The believers, right? Born again believers. And he has power, doesn't he? He has authority. He has protection. Demons aren't jumping on him. They know who he was. They can see the Holy Spirit within him. Paul's casting out demons and they have to go. And so for the born again follower of Christ, we find a whole different scenario than for unbelievers. There's power. There's authority given by Christ. When Jesus called his disciples in Mark chapter 3, it told us there what his plan for them was. Look at Mark chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. Right there. And he went up on the mountain and he summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him and he appointed 12 so that they would be with him, and so that he could send them out to preach, and what? And to have authority to cast out demons, right? So how does this work? What authority do we actually have? And how should it affect your life? Well, the first thing that we need to understand from this whole discussion is we need to understand that the whole point of Jesus coming, the reason that Jesus came, was to break the hold that sin and Satan had over humanity. Thank you, Jesus. That's why he came. Look at what it says in Rome, I'm sorry, in 1 John 3, 8. It says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. That, that word practices there means a continual habitual, unrepented sin, meaning you know it's wrong, but you're going back to it anyway, and you've just decided, you know what, well, God, I'm going to do it anyway. Continual, habitual, unrepented sin. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. But look at what it says. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. What was his purpose? To destroy the works of the devil. Or in Colossians chapter 2, it says this. You were dead, speaking of what we were before we were saved. You were dead because of your sins, because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. And then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all of our sin. And what did he do? He canceled 
the record of charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. And then what? In this way, he disarmed. Don't miss that. This is important to what we're talking about this morning. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And as a result of that, Paul would tell us in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, that sin is no longer your master. Because he canceled that record of charges against you. Because he disarmed Satan on the cross. And he set you free and broke your bondage. You're no longer, sin is no longer your master. Jesus broke the power that sin and Satan had over humanity at the cross. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, He rescued us. I like this verse. I, I think it, it, it's great. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That, that should be our view of ourselves. Rescued from a sinking ship and transferred to a beautiful kingdom. Now, here's the key point in the application for this morning. This is, it gets simple, and, and we're not trying to make it complicated. We need to be diligent, church, to walk in that freedom. We need to be diligent to walk in the victory that Christ bought for us at the cross. It says this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, key verse for us this morning. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Anytime we're stuck in sin, it's, it's viewed as bondage. But this verse says it was for freedom that you were set free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Stay there. Don't be subject again to the yoke of slavery. He's saying that Jesus broke the bondage of sin that Jesus broke the power that Satan held over humanity. And so he's saying, don't go back there. You've been set free. Don't go back. Don't give Satan any power or any place in your life. Don't give up the freedom and the victory that Christ bought for you at the cross by turning back to that life and that lifestyle and having that junk in your life. And because the power of sin was broken on the cross, the only power that Satan now has over the born-again believer is that which you give him. It's that which you give to him. You've been set free. The bondage has been broken. So any power that he has is power that we give him. Because we've got the promise of God that God is faithful. Right there. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, what you're able to handle. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. What does it say? It's saying that there's nothing that can hold you in bondage because through Christ, you have your way out. In Christ, you've been given all the power and all the authority needed to stand. But it comes from what? Standing firm in the Lord. The promise of God is, in James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, it says, Submit therefore to God, 
resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. But what does it take on our part? Diligence to do so, correct? To notice that this is a danger of our life, to submit our lives to God, to resist Satan and his temptation, drawing near to God, and he's going to draw near to you. It's a promise of the Holy Scriptures. And that's what happened there at the end of that story of the seven sons of Siva, hasn't it? Look at verse 18. That's exactly what happened. It says, Many also of those who had believed. Notice who it's talking about Christians. Talking about believers. It's saying many of those who had believed kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices. As they were getting saved, they were coming and they're saying, man, you know, we've been tangled up in this same stuff that Siva's boys were tangled up in. And they're repenting and they're getting right with God. Verse 19, and many of those who practiced the magic, they they brought all their books together and they began to burn them in the sight of everyone. Counted them up, 50,000 pieces of silver. And as a result of this getting right with God, what does it say? For the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. That's what happened when people got right with, with Jesus. When, when Christians started dealing with their junk and taking care of it and coming and confessing it and, and repenting before the Lord, there was then this atmosphere where God was free to, to move mightily among them. The word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing there in Ephesus. See, there's power in repentance. Power in repentance, power in purity, power when we come to Jesus. He already knows the junk we're doing anyway. We come and say, hey, you know what I've had, and here it is. I'm giving it to you right now. In Ephesians chapter 4, we'll finish with this. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, it says this. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Other translations say a place. Don't give him a foothold. Another translation says, don't give him any room. And that word opportunity right there in that verse is the Greek word topos. It's where we get our English word topography. It's a geographical term. So he's saying, don't give him any ground, any place, any area, any space. And the point is that if you and I have persistent, unrepented sin in our life, then you and I are opening up space, ground, and area for Satan to have influence in our life. Because what are we really doing? We're holding then, if we, if we have unrepented sin and we have persistent sin in our life, what we're doing is we're holding an area of our life away from God, aren't we? And we're saying to God, we're not allowing you to influence this area of our life. And what does Satan do with that? He goes, wow. That's great. You're not going to let God into that area of your life? Well, I'm going to come right there. That's where I'm going to come. That's where I'm going to influence. Right? Some examples would be if, if any of us are harboring unforgiveness to another. Right? You're giving Satan space, a place, an opportunity to come in and create bitterness and, and destroy relationships. If we're stealing or we're cheating, if you're married and you're flirting, You're giving space for Satan to come in and mess around. If you're unmarried and you're sleeping around, what are you doing? You're opening the door for him to come in and mess around. 
If you're, you're messing around with drugs, and you're looking at pornography, you're giving Satan a space to come into your life and start to work, whatever that sin might be. Unrepentant sin in the life of a Christian will leave the door open. It's giving him topography in your life, area, space, ground in which to work. And it's going to limit your effectiveness and it's going to give power and authority to Satan that doesn't belong to him. Because as we said, he only has as much power and as much authority over the believer as we're willing to give him. So don't give him any. I want to finish by just reading the beginning of uh, the armor of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, we find the armor of God. We're not going to go through the whole thing. We don't have enough time this morning. But the beginning of it, I think, is quite helpful for us. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Don't miss that. It's His might. Don't, Don't try and fight it on your own. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God. You you can do the homework afterward and read through the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. It's something that we do. It's we're putting it on. We're diligent to do so. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the, the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day having done everything to stand firm. Right? There's some level of this that's on us. God's power is there. His Spirit's within us. He, he has done His part. He has broken the power that Satan has over us. But we have to be willing to get in the battle ourselves, to stand firm, to put on that full armor of God. And, and I see too many casualties today in the church of people who are choosing not to walk in the victory that, that was bought for them at, at the cross. And it breaks my heart to see it. I don't want to see any, I love every one of you guys in this room, and I don't want to see any one of you fall because you have in Christ the power to stand. And, uh, and as we wrap up, I know it's kind of a heavier message this morning, but sometimes we do heavy messages. You know, that's why we teach through the Bible, and that's why we went back to chapter 19 to pick this up, um, b- because it's important. And as we wrap up, there will be people on either side of the room that, that would be happy to pray for you. You'll see them either place, and you'll be able to go up and say, hey, I'm kind of going through the battle, and I need to give up some stuff, and, and ask them to come pray for you. Or you can come up here on the rugs and kneel down and just spend time with Jesus. I'm actually glad this morning that that we don't have the whole big band this morning. Spencer did a beautiful job first uh, set, and and I'm excited to go into a second set where we just have uh, just a real reflective time with the Lord. Deal deal with your junk so that there's power in your life, so, so that you have authority over these things. And so that you have the protection of Christ in your life. Don't, don't leave an opening. Don't, don't get taken out because you weren't diligent to stand. Let's pray. Lord, as we go into to a time of uh, focus on you, we ask that, that we wouldn't waste this time, that we wouldn't be distracted with other things, but we would set our heart 
our mind upon you. We would be truthful to understand that we are truly in a battle. And we would come to you understanding that we have no power in of ourselves, that left to ourselves we would be like the seven sons of Siva. But in you, we have the full victory, not because of anything we've done, but because you hung on that cross, bearing every ounce of our sin and shame and guilt, and you took it away, and you nailed it to a cross, and we are set free. I pray, Lord, over those in this room that are not walking in the victory that you have for them, that they would come now before you. They would lay it at your feet. And they would be set free. Lord, break the bondage that any of us have tangled ourselves into. Break the sin that any of us have gotten so tangled in. As we come to you, your word promises that if we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. And that is our desire at this moment right now. In Jesus' name.